Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, Crux listeners, and good morning, Gary. Hey, Mike. We are taping this on a Friday morning after the U.S. elections, <laughs> and we still don't have a winner. We, we don't have who the next president of the United States will be, but we do have a guest who hopefully can better enlighten us as to just what happened and perhaps provide some insight on the pathway forward. On the crux, we have the incomparable Tony Fratto, former deputy press secretary for President George W. Bush and founder and managing partner of Hamilton Place Strategies, a strategic communications and crisis management firm. But first, the news. Gary, we might as well lead off with the elections, <laughs> right? Yep. I actually cast an absentee ballot, so I was one of those, if, if, if I were casting oh, it man. somewhere else other than South Carolina... Probably one of those been... secret ballots, Mike, huh? Well, I'll tell you, I'll I'm tell so you. disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been watching the results from Canada, where I'm currently working. And I must admit, it's been most entertaining to watch my Canadian business colleagues watch all of this and respond. Mike, can, I, can I interrupt just Please. for a second? <laughs> I, I saw a Canadian the other day on Twitter say, it's watching the election from Canada is like living in an apartment over a meth lab. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 somehow I think they're, they're all like, remember Yakov Smirnov, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the comedian who, the who always would comment about what was happening in the USSR and the punchline would always be, what a country. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. I, I, I think that's how the Canadians probably view what they see us doing. But we're in a period where Joe Biden is urging calm and patience as the votes are counted and encourages Americans to trust the process. Mm -hmm. And then we have Donald Trump, who talks of phony polls, big media, and talks about, you know, votes that are miraculously whittled away in secret and threatens lawsuits. In fact, I think a number have already yeah. been, been filed. filed. We step back and Donald Trump made his living in part from television as communicating yeah. every week with us on The Apprentice. But who's the better communicator here? Does it make any difference in terms of what these guys say now? Look, and I think I'm going to give you a surprise answer, or at least one that I regret saying, Mike. It doesn't endorse what he's doing, mm -hmm. uh, meaning the president, because I think actually his claims lies, you know, let's just say it, about the process are reprehensible in many ways and, and, and could incite people to do terrible things. However, has been an incredibly effective communicator. It's a grievance-based communications plan mm -hmm. to make people angry, devoid of fact or evidence, but it works with a certain audience. And as evidenced by nearly 70 million people who voted for him. And, and the thing that I saw, Mike, to answer this question, I think Biden is fine as a communicator. He's saying the right things in this interregnum between election day and a final verdict. He's going to get briefings on COVID. He, you know, the, his actions communicate well. He's getting national security briefings and that kind of thing. But if you want to talk about persuasiveness and yeah 
talking to the base, I have to say that that Trump and Fox News and his other surrogates, mm -hmm. the, the grievance-based emotional argument is a much easier one to make than a constitutional process argument. And they know it. Yeah. Now, I think it's reprehensible in many ways to use yeah, the podium. It's operating as a dog whistle. It's completely, to use the podium in the White House briefing room to to do that. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that it doesn't result in something, some kind of tragedy. Uh, we've already seen in Philadelphia, one person yeah. being arrested. I know I was watching uh, news in, I think it was in Georgia, where at one location, they were counting votes and there were, you know, sh shouts from an audience outside yes. the yeah, building. Yeah. I would say this, Mike, <laughs> the one thing he gets incredibly wrong is lack of consistency, which we all know is a cardinal rule, right? <laughs> Stop the vote, but only keep keep voting in places where uh, it's doing me some good. I like good, what's so. happening in Arizona, but maybe not what's happening <laughs> in Georgia and Pennsylvania. Uh, but, anyway, but I think you're right. I, I mean, I think that, you know, as a thinking about this from an academic pose, I think we sometimes rush to judgment that when somebody is that there's effective communications and then there's ethical communications and those aren't necessarily one and the same. Right. And what we are witnessing in politics today, and, you know, we can argue that it's been politics back to the 19th and maybe even 18th century. You can find examples where politicians said things that weren't quite true or, or were dishonest. But what you have here is someone who, you know, is attempting to make an argument that best suits them. That's what you normally see in mm -hmm. politics, but finding a way to do it with some level of fact, as well as emotion and as a as a vessel of words and communication and information can come across as, as effective and, and, and particularly to audiences that are almost prepped to, to pay attention. Even, you know, there's a great piece in the New York Times over the past few days about how the Trump campaign has used social media, created disinformation and misinformation on social media. And how that becomes, and it, it relates to this hashtag Biden crime family, right? And how even the president misspelling a word in that tweet, misspelling the word family, becomes an effective communications strategy because people say, ah, look, the dummy, the dope <laughs> misspelled family. And they spread his disinformation by pointing this out. I really highly recommend this because it helped me to, un this article, it helped me understand how devious mm -hmm. you can be using social media these days mm -hmm. to spread what I would consider to be a smear against the Biden family. And then it shows up at one of the polling places where one of the states is giving just a routine update on the vote count. One of the Trump supporters comes out and starts yelling Biden crime family, Biden crime family. So today, given the tools that we have and given the emotion that we have in the, in the country, if you intend to deceive, uh, which Shakespeare play, uh, I'm an English literature major and I should know this, <laughs> right? Oh, how he stoops to deceive or something. If you intend to deceive, it is relatively easy to do, Mike. And I, know, I think the Trump campaign has understood that well and used it quite effectively. So Mike, now we've talked about 
sort of the professional communicators, at least the political professionals mm -hmm. in the campaigns. But you, you saw an example this week in the U.S. of sort of the rank and file public servants who in the end, run our states, run our villages, towns, and our country yeah. in the middle of the hottest election in memory, yeah. talking about process. It would tell yeah. us what your well, impressions you, were. You, you know, it's, it's interesting. We spend a lot of time thinking about elections and thinking about communications around elections. And we go and we think about the politicians themselves. We think about the news media and the pundits. But sometimes we, we, we miss the point that there are people who actually manage Mm -hmm. these events, these elections, much like we actually have people who manage our health right. organizations, you know, like Tony Fauci. Yeah, and kind yeah. of for, for me, kind of the, the, the Tony Fauci award for the elections goes to a public servant. He's not elected. He's not the secretary of state in Georgia, but this guy, Gabriel Sterling. Yeah. He very thoughtfully walked people through uh, the facts in terms of the voting is when their process really began. Yeah, you know, they had to get the mm -hmm. system up, but now the process continues because they have to carefully, thoughtfully, rightfully tally up all of these votes. And he went through step by step what they were doing. He went through how votes came in county by county, really legitimized the process and the election that, you know, the president otherwise would have called into question. And I think that unsung heroes, you know, yeah. like Gabriel Sterling need to be elevated in this process it, it, when we think about who good communicators are around elections. Isn't it amazing that someone like this, it seems like in every big crisis or issue, someone like this emerges, who is completely dedicated to the job, to public service, and doing right, the and right who, thing. And doing the right thing and steps forward. Haley, our great graduate assistant, we'll put the video of that press conference on the Crux website. And now that you mention it, Mike, it's a great, I'm right in the middle in my BU crisis class of talking about being a, an effective spokesperson. And I'm going to steal that as well, too. Well, and we have an class. effective spokesperson on with us as a guest. Yeah, exactly. Tony Fratto. So, hey, Mike, great to catch up. Let's go to our guest now, Tony. Hello, everyone. Our guest today on The Crux is one of the most respected and well-liked people in the communications business, Tony Fratto, who's the managing partner of Hamilton Place Strategies, a DC-based public affairs firm. Although, Tony, I think you're in New York now, right? Is that you? I am. We've had an office here, and Judy and I decided, you know, we'll come up and run it in person rather than via Amtrak. Oh, nice. Nice. So look, Tony's the perfect guest for us today. Former deputy press secretary for Bush W in the White House and an assistant secretary at the U.S. Treasury Department. I got to know Tony while I was CCO at GE and his guidance was invaluable to us as we tried to navigate, I guess, Obama era Washington. Yeah, uh, Tony. And there's no one who knows more or cares about some of these big issues, trade, ESG, than Tony. And for a multinational like GE, that was just gold for us. So, Tony, welcome to the crux. Thanks, Gary. Great to be with you. Look, we're taping this about three days out 
from the presidential election. Some of it is is still in doubt, although we'll talk about this in a minute. There seems to be a direction for former Vice President Biden. So right out of the gate, Tony, I have to ask you the question that's on everybody's minds these days after this election. What in the heck do you have against sourdough bread? <laughs> I, it's really, seriously. I guess, I, I've I, just, a, I guess I've had a tweet or two out on that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I love sourdough bread, so I, I pay attention to your tweets because they're so good, but this one just you know, stuck with me. I'll, Gary, I'll... You know, I'll eat sourdough bread. It's fine. <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's just, you know, we went through this, you know, but I'm Italian and I spent a lot of time in France too. So, you know, like we know one or two things about bread. bread. Yes. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, went through this COVID thing where everyone's learning how to bake bread. And I thought, well, yeah, if you're going to learn to bake bread, why don't you bake bread that tastes good? You know, I, mean, what's, what's the, what's, what's I have the, to tell you, Tony, I'm in uh, upstate New York in Hudson, a little city. And it is like the sourdough bread capital of the world now. New bakeries are opening here and all they do is sourdough. So San Francisco will probably argue with you sure. on that. I'll be happy with my baguette or good Italian <laughs> country white will, be, will make, me, make me happy. Uh, so, ta- so, so talking about baking, maybe, maybe we can talk about whether or not the, the election's been baked. I don't know that that's a, a suitable <laughs> transition. Good transition. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the, the outcome still is somewhat uncertain. Gary said there's a trend. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is we've had two very, very different takes on the election from the former vice president and now the president, a gamut that seemingly runs from count every vote to their cheating on me. What should we think of all of this? And given what the public opinion polls said going in, were you surprised how close this election actually has been? I, honestly, I was. Yeah. I mean, I would love to say that, you know, I was a smart guy who thought it would be this tight. You know, after 2016, with the polling errors, were actually a bit overblown in 2016. You know, the national polling in 2016 was actually pretty accurate. In fact, it was, it was a, mm-hmm. maybe the most accurate national poll ever. You know, got Especially almost if you nailed. look at trend lines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost nailed Clinton's popular vote at the differential over Trump. The, the problem were, was on some of the state polls, and in particular in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So what happened after that was uh, you know, where they were off, you know, and, and in fact, so far off that, you know, Hillary Clinton barely campaigned in Michigan and Wisconsin, Wisconsin during the last yeah. six weeks of the campaign. And of course, we know what happened. Trump, you know, wins those states and wins the presidency. So look at the 2020 and uh, this you know, introspection of uh, the, the polling industry and their commitment to improve the quality of their polls, to fix some of the errors. Some of the errors were not weighting the education level, not having enough people of, of you know, various education levels. And we know that education level was particularly dispositive on, on, on how people, but if you, if you have a college degree or you don't have a college degree, was an enormous yes. uh, indicator, right, Absolutely. for how you vote. So they were supposed to have gone and fixed these things. And in some states, you know, we could look at North Carolina, Georgia right now, mm-hmm. which it looks like Biden is probably going to pull out, you know. May but, win, uh, you yeah. Know, yeah, but, you know, some of these states, Minnesota, North Carolina, Georgia, polling actually is pretty good in these states. And a number of other states are, you know, were not bad. There were you know, some misses in uh, by a, a little bit in Florida and Texas, Ohio. The real awful misses, though, were once again in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I mm-hmm. mean, off by enormous 
you know, exactly. so whatever they, they fixed, they actually got worse, not better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's well, amazing. I, I mean, a, yeah. ABC poll in Wisconsin, what, 17 points at one point for, for Biden. And, and it and was if, a squeaker. And, and Gary, if that was the only outlier, right? Because you, exactly. if you, you know, you're going to have on it, you're going to have a natural distribution on polls. So if you have an outlier that says it's going to be a huge win for one candidate, that can happen, you know, right. and you just right. discount, you just, you know, you throw out the outlier on the top and the outlier on the bottom and look at the ones in the middle. The ones in the middle had Biden win by eight, nine, 10 points. Mm hmm. And right, I mean, and he wins by that's going to be a point and a half, maybe a point in Wisconsin, you know, maybe two points in, in Michigan, maybe it'll be two points in Pennsylvania. So these are big misses in big, important states that were, you know, that were polled repeatedly. Same thing in Florida. While the, the overall number miss in Florida isn't that bad, the single most populous county, Miami-Dade County, they missed horribly. Right. And this is where, yes. you know, right. A million votes are there. It's the county that you need to get right. And you the only to. thing I looked at on election night, people are talking about, well, you know, going around the map on Florida. And the only thing I wanted to see was where's the vote in Miami-Dade County and how many votes are left? Because if Biden doesn't get 65% of the vote there, he's not going to win Florida. And of course he performed horribly in, mm -hmm. in Miami-Dade. Horribly, he won the county. But he only got, I think, 56, 57 yeah. percent of the percent of the vote, not nearly enough to carry the state. So the polling, we need to figure out a way to do it better. And Gary, if you saw my tweets, you know, we don't have a replacement right now. You know, we know that people talk about, well, you know, we should go out and talk to more people. I don't know that anecdotal kinds of that they help. You know, we do want to hear anecdotal what people are saying. It's a rifle shot for reporters to go find somebody to talk oh, yeah. to. These are big oh, yeah. states and a lot of people, right? So well, and, and then what yeah. becomes representative, you know, of, of the whole when America is so polarized on one level. On another level, you know, we we're glued to our devices. So and in some ways, while it may be easier for us to connect to the world, it may make it more difficult for pollsters to connect with us. And then online polling, I think, is getting sharper and better mm -hmm. to the extent that you can have much larger panels than what yeah. we're traditionally used to. But even that can have its flaws. So I think there's some real challenges there. I, mean, I, I want to take this in a slightly different Mm -hmm. direction than I had intended simply because of this whole notion of I know you have clients today and I've got to think that a lot of them are thinking these companies are thinking you know how do we deal with employees that probably have been up late and are anxious about this polarized very environment yep, very yeah. stressed some may be very conservative some may be very liberal What's your advice to how companies should be talking about this election to their employees? Well, the first thing I would say on it is, uh, I mean, I'll talk about the election specifically. I would say nearly every company was tested over the summer, the late summer, uh, because mm -hmm. of the, the George, George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter movement. So, mm -hmm. so there is, they've, had a, they've had a little bit of recent practice of having to communicate with their workers on a super emotional issue. Uh, and where they needed to be very careful about 
you know, their words and how they address issues. And so I wish we had not had to deal with that, but they've had a little bit of practice. Mm -hmm. And that's good because these are all emotional issues. Yeah. But I want to make a, a general point on this, and then we can talk specifically about the election. The general point is, first of all, you should pr be practicing communicating with your workforce, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it should not be speaking at them. You should be talking, speaking with them. You should do it regularly. You should be on the shop floor. You should be getting around and listening to what your staff and employees are saying on a very regular basis. And in fact, especially when you have nothing to say, mm -hmm. you know, this is yeah. like a really gonna, good point. Yeah. Right. Right, Gare? Yeah, you know, like, totally. I mean, I mean, I mean, you did, I mean, especially at the, you know, GE at an enormous, very big, far-flung company. And if you go to speak to your employees in the big moment, mm -hmm. they're not used to hearing you. And you're not used to speaking to them and you don't get their voice and you don't get the sensitivity to it. And you don't do that with your friends, right? You don't just call them <laughs> up on, you know, only on, yeah, great you know, point. Yep. when you've got a problem, right? right? So like, so the first thing I would say is like, do it regularly. And there, there are lots of ways that you can do it, but doing it regularly is better, is, is, is already like the big improvement. We could you know, <laughs> yeah. give lots That's of true. advice on That's like true. how to do it, right? The tactics, yeah. you can figure it out, right? But just yeah. do it. Yeah. And you'll get better at it and they will get better at it too. That's the the thing It's like, you'll get better at it, but they get better at hearing you. Yeah. And yeah. right. And so yeah. it's, yeah, so no, I think that's right. I was really impressed. I, I saw a, a note that Jamie Diamond had sent to his workforce and, and he's somebody who communicates regularly, you know, with his employees, but I thought it was pretty thoughtful in the mix of all of this. You know, it talked about, you know, waiting for the results. We have to have faith, you know, in the electoral and, and judicial system. Talked how, how, how much he cared about employees and that if you were feeling anxious and gave them some, some tips on, and things that they could, could do, offices that, in terms of employee assistance that they could reach out to. But he also undergirded that with the notion that, J.P. Morgan Chase would continue to work with government leaders from mm -hmm. both sides of the aisle, you know, no providing what no yeah. matter what happens. There's something to be said for that, even though it's kind of on one level, it's it's a vanilla, right? It's not mm -hmm. taking sides, but it can be calming, I think, in in a moment like this. I think so too, and and of course, you know, Jamie is very good at that, and you know, he he does he does do it very regularly, and not everybody can communicate like him. He has a unique voice, but he does do it a lot, and he does try to find that space. And I think that's right. And look, when we think about think something like an election, we're all impacted by it. You know, even at HPS 40 years ago, I have regularly have a, a number of first generation or foreign national mm -hmm. people working for me. And it was a very emotional morning the day after the 2016 election where, you know, these were people who took it very personally that, you know, the country they came to just elected someone who doesn't want them here. You know, that was mm -hmm. the feeling they got. They know we're not wanted here. And like I said, we're a, we're a bipartisan firm, so a lot of you know young active Democrats working for us too, and we're not you know weren't happy about it. And it was the first thing we did is like gathered everybody together and talk about what is happening, what our role in it is. Now we are very fortunate, and the, the you know my message to our guys was here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of you know policy battles over the next at least four years. Yeah you know, we get to go work on them. Participate yeah. in these things. We yeah. get to participate. Yeah. You know, we get yeah. like- Well, you we know, at the crux, we had a conversation yeah. too, because yeah. yeah. Gary was Republican, I'm Democrat. 
and, and we were talking about when Gary was going to move to Canada. <laughs> it was very close this week it was very close this week well tony Same. i have to tell you you know your your firm is that was one of the things that always impressed me was the atmosphere and the culture of openness and yeah. and accessibility to you and your other and the partners and that kind of thing and, and you can tell that just walking into your place and you can also tell that a lot of times just walking into a big company even though they're big, you walk into the HQ or you walk Absolutely. into one of the, you can feel whether they're doing the things you talk about and whether yeah. people feel comfortable. And these are, look, we're two countries right now, right? Mm -hmm. With very high emotions and doing what you just said. And I love the idea and I'm going to steal it from my classes. Of talk course. to people, talk to people, even when you have nothing to say, because we have this, you know, cardinal rule in communication is, you can over communicate, right? And all yeah. of those kinds of things. But if people get used to seeing you, and as you say, I love this idea that they get better. Absolutely. Right? And definitely, and definitely steal that because we, we are, as, look, as, as communicators and people who advise people how to communicate, you know, we're always talking about our communication to them. Right. right? There is a art in becoming a good listener also and, and receiver of information. And again, like if it's very episodic, just think on anything you do, right? If it's very episodic, you, you know, you get out of practice. Was well, it really like, really, I get out of practice on, on how to receive oh, totally. information. You do, of course you do just like anything else. Yeah. You know, and, so, and, uh, and employees yeah. say, if it's, if it's episodic, every time they see you, they say, uh Oh, that's here right. The temperature goes up and, and <laughs> here, they, you know, here right? comes the heartbeat, hammer. Heartbeat comes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, oh. so, uh, well, yeah. I want to I want to switch a little bit to Trumpism here, yeah. Tony, yeah. and you're just a keen observer of all of this that's going on. And I'm going to sound a little bit like the, the president right now. You know, one, one of his stories, a guy told me on an airplane, you know, that kind of thing. One of those stories. <laughs> but I was talking with a, a senior Republican the other day, and, and he was just incredulous that with the botched handling of covid, which I think we can all agree is the case his erratic behavior, meaning the president's, uh, the racial justice issues, the economic inconsistency on response to the COVID. This, this person, a leading Republican party member, said it's amazing to us that this guy gets one vote. And in fact, we're seeing now he's going to get almost 69 million votes. Um, yeah, probably over and, 70 million votes. And, yeah, um, and, and, yeah. And so my question is, does Trumpism survive past January? 20th is this yeah i think it does i get to see it gary both you and mike use the phrase about a divided country and mm -hmm. two countries i get to live in both of those countries you know mm -hmm. i mean I, I mean i spent a lot obviously i spent a lot of my my time in in dc i live in new york now my home that i you know have is in somerset county pennsylvania which is you know wow. beautiful like step hills you know the beautiful rolling countryside in pennsylvania Gorgeous. and on yeah. the step hills of the oral mountains it's trump country there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Upper East Side of New York here, which is the other country. And the thing that I see, a lot of people are concerned about a lot of the same kinds of things. But they look at the set of facts, they look with their eyes at what is happening, and come to completely opposite mm -hmm. conclusions as to what the meaning of it is. And even in some cases, what is actually happening and what is important from this event. And we saw that with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. 
we see it with COVID. Some of it, uh, some of it is in fact the biases we bring to events like that. Some of it is tribal relating to, you know, which team are you on? Uh, right. As a Republican myself, you know, like I, I see the bias from my colleagues and friends uh, in the Republican Party. Their natural instinct, their first instinct is to take the side of the team leader regardless of the facts. Exactly. Then Bl blind and, loyalty. Yeah. Blind loyalty, no matter what, because then you you're turning on your tribe. If you take the other side, if you disagree, you're turning on your tribe and there's pressure on that. But there are also just people coming from a very you know different backgrounds, different, you know, different places and coming to different conclusions. And I think that, you know, there's there's a challenge, there's a challenge for that for to govern. Correct. Yeah. You know, it becomes really difficult to find solutions to our biggest problems. Mm -hmm. Really difficult. And uh, because well, speaking of that, Tony, uh, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, Not your firm, you, 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 you know, evidence-based communication. So this has been particularly frustrating for me. And and you, you, Mike, and I grew up in an era where that is what you practiced, right? Yeah. And and where there was respect for expertise and fact and. And a lot of that's been lost. So that's my question is, how do we break that dynamic that you just talked about? I think we have to go do it better. And, yeah. and look, again, like this, I guess communicators, we have to get better at it. Like if we are tied to the old ways of doing it, I'm, you know, I'm becoming an older guy now and, you know, I've got, I've got my... It's better too than many baguettes. Yeah. Too many baguettes, Tony. Too many yeah. baguettes, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, um, you know, but, but I try to always think and try to teach our people, like, let's try, let's, we need to find a new way. One of our things is, um, and this is, you know, you'd be surprised that, like, it's really good business to go teach people that 50-page reports are fine, We've known this, right? 50 page reports mm. are fine, but if you can't deconstruct it and pull out charts and share them and show it, like you're just not gonna reach the people who you need to consume this information and they don't have time for your report. They may <laughs> have time for a, a person they respect telling them about your report. It, you may catch their eye with the chart that you pulled out of the report that shows, you know, really brings to light an important fact that uh, that tells the story for them, you know. So, like, it's a you know show don't tell kind of world, but that's you know. So we say evidence, yeah. Is that be a bunch of nerds? Yeah, we're we're kind of nerdy, but we have a creative <laughs> shop too because like we really have to show people exactly in ways that are easy for them to consume because we can't afford to just shrug our shoulders and say, well, people just really don't understand this this thing. We, well, we you don't have that luxury. We have to find a way to get better and. and and succeed and boy i haven't done a tiktok video yet for you know one of our clients but we will we <laughs> exactly will. totally right? exactly like, yeah. exactly yeah. well you know my hero bruce springsteen along those lines says show don't tell that you know exactly you know so yeah. along these lines on trumpism there's a much watched interview that was i saw on msnbc the other day and i'm going to pr pronounce his name wrong probably here his name is, uh, he's the chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton, Eddie Glauday, I think, Jr. And he said, blaming Trump for racism in America is easy, and that the president is actually the manifestation of ugliness that's inside us. In other words, he's not the cause of racism in America, mm -hmm. but more a reflection of it. And, and this reason I ask it here, Tony, is, is this two countries kind of discussion. And racism in the middle of that is so volatile and flammable. Yeah. 
Are we still a racist country? I think views on race impact a significant part of the American population. And we're, mm-hmm. and we're left with legacies of racism. And when I say, when, if I say legacy, I think, you know, some people say, well, you, are you saying it's in the past? I'm not saying it's in the past. I'm, I'm saying it's in the present, but it's reflected in a lot of the ways that we do things and, you know, structures of government and the workforce, mm-hmm. the where, where people live, mm-hmm. right? We cannot say that you know, we don't have a legacy of racism. We know people live segregated. You know, people don't naturally, Italians don't live so yeah. segregated from the Irish, right? I mean, like we know that we can see these things with our own eyes, that where do a black people in particular live? And we see it with other people of color too, but in particular black people, and this is five uh, people of color working for me. And we were in the middle of this as we're dealing with it with our, our clients, but also dealing with it internally, you know, and, and there is an instinct from, you know, like from, from Pittsburgh, which is, you know, overwhelmingly white, the county mm-hmm. I'm in right now. I don't know if there are any black people in the county at all. You know, <laughs> Same I've here, never man. seen, I've never seen <laughs> one. Right. And, and, yeah. uh, you know, my high school, we had, I think, two black kids in my high school. I know there, I know that there are views on race. I know that when President Trump said things like, people are going to come to your suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, Cory Booker is going to come to your suburbs. Well, you know, it wasn't, why, why Cory Booker, right? Why did he choose Cory Booker? So yeah, is he taking advantage of the racism that still persists in America. You know, yeah, he's not the cause of it. He's not helping it, though, when that is a signal that, you know, people of color are going to come to your neighborhoods and they're going to be led by this, who? By this prominent Black American Mm -hmm. uh, senator from New Jersey. And that is a signal. It's not making things better. And I do know that people are motivated by those. Views. Clearly, so it, yep. It's not, it's not a winning strategy, right? I mean, I mean, President Trump won in 2016, but not because he won the popular vote. He's not going to win the popular vote again this time. Whatever happens to the outcome of the Electoral College, again, he's going to lose by an even larger, larger margin. Fact, maybe, yeah. maybe twice as large as yep. uh, his popular vote loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it's a it's a sustainable winning strategy. Mm-hmm. This is no way to build a party. And, you know, you asked Gary earlier about, you know, Trumpism, and is it going to sustain itself? I think for some time it is. They are not going anywhere. He is not going anywhere. The mm-hmm. family isn't going anywhere. They're going to continue to address these kinds of issues and immigration in the way that they have and have an influence on the party because they're going to be prominent voices and they're going to be prominent fundraisers for, uh, for the party as well. So you're going to see and hear them for, for quite a while. And I will tell you that this is troubling for a lot of Republican leaders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very concerning to them because the direction that where of where the electorate is going right now, some of them are bothered by it on moral grounds, but even as a, you know, a cold political analysis analysis uh, exactly right yeah, yeah georgia is not an anomaly right right, right. Well, and, not, yeah. well you know and Georgia's tony to your an point I, I mean this is what's traversing here first of all I, the comment you made about you know the real challenge here is systemic it's not simply you know what trump is is saying i i think is an important thought but i also think america's changing the the literal face of america is changing and as a consequence, demographics are going to make this increasingly harder. And that's what was playing into Georgia. That's what was playing into Arizona. That is what was playing into Nevada. They're not like the platelets have shifted. They're, mm-hmm. they're slow. They're progressive. It's going to take some time. 
It is, but, but it's but the, but the direction is clear. I think, Mike. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, no. I think you're right. Yeah, I think completely. you're right. So, so I want to I'm going to take that and move it yet in a different direction. You know, we've talked a little bit about the election, a little bit about polling, a little bit about the changing nature of America. I want to center it back to the changing nature of the news media. As a deputy press secretary to a United States president, as somebody who counsels lots of companies, knows the media well in both New York and D.C., on one level, there's been some criticism, like from Kyle Pope, who, who writes the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review about the actual coverage of politics and the election. But I think there's even maybe even a broader concern is that just as we were talking about there being a war on facts, a war on science, a war on, on what's, what's accurate. The news, unfortunately, I think, kind of covers things from a point-counterpoint kind of juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's facts on that side and there's facts on the other side. And so everything's depicted as kind of a horse race and that everybody's statement is equal. I wonder yeah. how we <laughs> get to a point where somebody kind of settles out the noise and helps decipher what's real and what's not. I spend so much time on this. First of all, I, you know, I love journalists. I, I mean, I, I know so many really brilliant reporters, really committed. You know, I always think, you know, I hired a reporter once from the Wall Street Journal and, uh, and I said I was as, as happy as I was to hire him. I felt sad because I took someone who was really <laughs> talented out of the news media and took them out of the news media. Completely, yes. Yeah, yes. you know, and it's like, man, we need, we need like more. Now I can like put that. a sourdough bread on the table. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think speed is a thing. Like the speed yeah. of the when I, you know, when I started working on, in media and you know was a, pre, was a press secretary in the Hill in the '90s, and I literally did cut clip news, you know, stories out of the mm. newspaper photocopy them and share them so people could read the news you know in, in a in a quick way in the morning and we would focus even in my time in the white house as late as you know 2008 you have to think about what is on the evening news like the evening news we had to watch it was a thing because yeah. 30 million americans were actually or 25 million americans at that time were actually watching still the evening news that was how they were getting their news and what was on the front page of the newspaper mattered well it's changed so much both in terms of the, the style but also the amount of information sharing has become so fast that the kinds of things that we use to either you know, filter the news to determine what is important and what isn't important, who are and who are not important voices, and what a fact is, the filter that that went through, everything from a copy editor and a fact checker to, you know, Walter Cronkite making an editorial decision that, you know what, I'm not going to, we're not going to cover, I need more on that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go with my voice on and tell 15 million CBS uh, news watchers this thing, unless I can be confident that it's accurate. And so like those filters are, they're just gone, right? And so we are, we are seeing things immediately. In a lot of ways, we are like, you know, a toddler with a toy. We don't know that it can break and it can break other things. And we're just playing with it <laughs> and things are breaking. We are mm -hmm. seeing that, like, you know, things are breaking. We are, the way people interpret news, their, their uh, lack of confidence in it. And then some of it is just the nature of some of the, like some of the news business is just, is really complex in that, you know, when I went to treasury department in 2001, 
you know, I was happy to go there because I'm an econ guy and, you know, I love those issues and have a lot of knowledge on them. The thing that impressed me the most about the press corps that covered the Treasury Department, they cover the Fed, the Fed also, they are among the smartest and most talented in the world. Completely. In the world. They're like world-class reporters covering a very complex agency and issues. And they stay there because they have gaining that knowledge of being able to report on these things is really valuable. The other thing I noticed is that if you watch political communication, especially during campaigns, but even coverage of the Hill, what passes for fairness is a he said, she said story. And to your point, they're uh, weighted equally. We can't sort out what is the real issue on this healthcare proposal. I don't know. Just get one side saying it and the other side saying their view. And that's fair. If you go to the Treasury Department and you've got like, you know, Bloomberg reporter or, or a Reuters reporter, they've got a trader on the other end of the wire. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. who's, yeah. who's making a trading decision based on the news story that you file. And yeah. if you get it wrong, you know, if you misinterpreted it, if you just he said, she said it, and not get to the substance of the issue and really explain what this new treasury regulation is or what the Fed chairman said about interest rates. If you get it wrong, you're going to lose a lot of money and you're probably going to get fired. You know, Mike Bloomberg doesn't, doesn't <laughs> yeah. suffer fools. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, suffer yeah. fools, right? You get that yeah. stuff wrong. You may get you may get a second yeah. chance, but, but you're only getting one, yeah. you know? So their standard for reporting was it really impressed me when I came to, when I came to treasury. It was great. But the, the lessons I took from that was that, you know, the knowledge of reporters is you know their understanding of complex issues is really important to the quality of their reporting Mm -hmm. and so now a lot of people look at the news media and say look at these kids they're all like they're all kids they're all young they don't stay on the beats long you know they're covering these issues i have so many clients say you know i saw that story that reporter doesn't know what she's talking about you know Mm -hmm. We, again, like we do not have the luxury of having reporters who don't understand the yeah. complex issues. It's our job to go educate them, whether it's Inform in government, them. Yeah. whether yeah. it's at a company, yeah. right? We have to teach them. I can't shrug and say, well, they just yeah. don't under, they just don't get it. You know, my right. job is to make them get it. And that means I'm going to go out there every day and try to figure out where, like, how can I educate the reporters that I'm dealing with so that they can do their job better. And you know what you find out? They want to do their job better. They want yeah. this information. They want, they appreciate yeah. so much. If you take time to teach them about the complex issue, yeah. again, like we talked about with employees, not just when the big thing is happening, but during the quiet time, you know, can Ongoing. you find time yeah. to go like spend time to share some information, show them a report, tell them the kinds of things that you're working on so that their knowledge level is higher and they end up covering things better. I think that's, before we let you go, one of the things that I did want to ask you, you talked about your time at Treasury, and we talked a lot about Trumpism, and, but if the current trends that we're, we're seeing on the news continue in terms of the vote counting and Biden becomes president, does he have to govern from the center? And what does that mean for America? Yeah. What does it mean to issues that, you care about like international trade? First, I think it's his instinct is to, you know, he's a center left. Mm -hmm. We know Joe Biden, you know, he's been around for a while. He's a center left guy. It looks like the Senate probably, I mean, we're going to, you know, we're going to see, we're going to have a runoff in Georgia. This is is insane. Maybe two of them, right? (laughs) Yeah, probably, probably two in January, which, which is, I don't know who's, this is a cockamamie 
system, right? uh, system exactly. because like, I mean, I mean, the Constitution says we, you know, you open the new the, the new Congress on January third, but in the meantime, we're not going to know who's controlling the, the the Senate at that time because we're going to have these two runoffs happening in Georgia two days later. So this is a this is is really um, crazy, but likely, very likely that one or both of those seats go to uh, the Republican and the Republicans retain control of the Senate in a very narrow majority. But that's going to be a check on, I think, where progressives are. You know, there, there was a, there was a, you know, if we thought that the, the Senate was going to go Democratic, uh, was going to go Democrat, even though Biden's instincts are, you know, more moderate center left on a lot of issues, that he was going to have enormous pressure from the progressive wing to go very far on yeah, things like yeah. climate and tax policy and a lot of other, you know, healthcare and other issues. Now, what we can expect is a more centered government. Now, you asked about trade, something I spent a lot of time on, and you know, I've worked on I think 15, 14, you know, free trade agreements and big proponent of liberalizing trade. Biden is not by instinct a free trader. He is skeptical of trade. I am not optimistic that we are going to see a move towards greater liberalization trade. I do think we're going to see some, uh, I, I think it'll be his instinct, and I think this is the right way to go, is to reestablish our relationships with our trading partners in Asia and our trading partners in, in the transatlantic relations and rebuild the transatlantic relationship. Build those relationships uh, overall. Uh, exactly well. right. Yeah. right, right. From a national security standpoint and Completely. from an economic and trade standpoint, right. and the benefit of that, and the, the missed opportunity that we've had over the past four years, where the Trump administration has had this go it alone fight with China, is that we missed a lot of time when we should have been working with our like-minded democracies mm -hmm. and trading partners to set the rules of global trade in a way. That, you know, again, that Western democracies and free market economies enjoy and have Benefit resulted from, in yeah. great prosperity in our economy. So we need to get back to that, but we've had some lost time. And I do think Biden will do that. I, you know, if there is a transatlantic trade agreement, tariffs between the two economies are actually fairly low. You know, mm -hmm. they're not, there aren't huge gains from reducing tariffs. There are gains in services, probably, and gains in the standards for different kinds of products. You know, and you both know how how sticky those things can be oh, you know, for, uh, for China, yeah. you know, so getting to be better rules of the road, but th th those aren't big trade liberalization efforts, but they're important to do. But the, the biggest, the biggest challenge that I think Western democracies and free market economies have is to confront China together because we do want to see China succeed as an economy. Absolutely. We want to see it succeed in the right way. Right. And we want to make sure that we're believers in our rules and we want them to follow the rules that have been successful for all of us and for the rest of the world, not just their own rules uh, for them for themselves. So I think that's I think that's the, the economic, the global economic challenge of our time. And I expect that Biden sees that and sees that opportunity. Well, you know, Tony, we talked about tribalism to a certain degree. One thing that I'm optimistic about is that the three leaders of government now, Biden, presumably, mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, all come from a legislative tribe, yeah. if you will, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and yeah. they understand the art of legislation and governing from that sense. And so on trade and other issues and challenges that face, the, I'm, I'm hopeful that 
they'll be able to get things done, even on things as simple and as popular as infrastructure in this country. Yeah, right? it, it may, it, <laughs> you know? it may, we may actually, we may actually get infrastructure. I actually, I mean, it is, it is the great mystery, don't you think? That, yeah, totally. Uh, and, and so, the mystery and missed opportunity that there is that there wasn't some infrastructure deal with. Well, we did have several. Inf- we we did have several infrastructure weeks. Tony, we which we, you know, which we can anyway. Well, listen, you have your own podcast, the Macrocast. H- I got the yeah. That we're going to be recording it here shortly. Yes, so I'll, we'll put a link on our website to yours. And really, thank you. This has been fantastic. And, and been like terrific. I say, I've got several things I can now take into the classroom and claim to be my own. Tony, you, you know, you know, I still buy my best material too, Gary. Exactly. All right. Tony Frattle, thank thank you you so much for being on The Crux. Take care. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.